who are going to do what other people have said, and that's go on from here. But I'm going to do even more than that, and I'm going to go back further all the way to Galatians 3, 7, because there's some things in Galatians chapter 3 that we all need to not only know, but master. And I think they are essential to the proclamation of the doctrine of the, well, what we're studying, the apocalypse of the gospel, which is the radical revelation of the saving righteousness of God. I would call it a radical, universal saving righteousness of God, an apocalypse. If anything is going to be the salvation of a nation or a generation, it's the presentation of that vision. The apocalypse of the radical, salvific righteousness of God in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So these are things that I'm, I'm kind of nailing down tonight. And we have a request, a special request for midweek prayer. This comes from the potter's shed and our faithful believers up there, our faithful brethren up there for a young lady who's 14 years of age. Her name is Katie. Her parents are Sarah and Chad. And she's been diagnosed with lung cancer. And the family is kind of going through that dilemma and devastation right now. So we've been asked particularly, Ted Lestai, prayer team, to pray for her tonight. So let's open in prayer and include a specific effective petition for Katie and her family. Let's pray. Father, we ask for the intrusion of your omnipotent grace and love into the life of Katie, into the lives of her parents. We pray that you'll intrude into this situation with your omnipotent benevolence and kindness through Christ Jesus and through the Spirit so that in the not-too-distant future, according to 2 Corinthians 4.15, many will be giving you thanks for the grace received as a result of these petitions. And we pray that your spirit of peace will reside in their home. Grant them a peace that surpasses knowing, a peace that surpasses understanding. We pray for that same peace for Martha Rickard and for Jack who is seriously ill now and in hospice. And we thank you, Father, for the privilege of praying, that we have even the privilege to storm the throne with petitions. Pray also for Blaze Urban, who is weaker and weaker in body, but stronger and stronger in faith and in his perception of the God of all grace and the effect that he's having even without being able to move, the effect that he's having. And thank you for those like Ricky and Larry and Judy who have been staying in touch with him and being our representatives of Tedelestai to him. We So many things we could ask you for, Father, but we know our prayer group is effectively praying. We know that there are many praying, and there are requests now that I have not spoken, which others are speaking from their heart. And this is a time we'll ask you to answer them because at this moment you are pouring out a spirit of grace and supplications on your house, on the household of faith. And we also ask, Father, that you will continue to bless the May project of non-perishable items 
of food and paper products for the Salvation Army and for those in need. Again, we pray that your grace will be manifested in a way to those in need, that Jesus Christ will be the focus of people's thanks. Open the eyes of our heart now to understand things that we could not lay hold of in our weakened humanity, but which are accessible to us by your undying grace through the dying of our Savior and the resurrection of him and the elevation of him to your right hand. May the eyes of our heart see him at the right side of majesty in the highest heavens. And may we recognize that he is Lord over all and will be recognized as such verbally and through a universal genuflection in a future that is known only to you, but in a present that is already occurring in our hearts and in the hearts of many. We pray that you'll rivet things that we need to know about the gospel of the glory of the Christ into our hearts so that we can go forth in a nation, in a generation, in a world in which the truth of the gospel is veiled by the God of this age. May that veil be rent and torn and the gospel of the glory of Christ shine forth with triumph. We ask this in his name. Amen. Better call Paul. This is our 60th shot at it. I was talking to a person who calls himself my oldest congregant, Tommy, Tom Toole up in Massachusetts. And he wasn't aware. He just finished Revelation, rev the book. And he said, do I get a star for that? And I said, yeah, the next time I text you, I'll put a star emoji next to your name. So, but he, he wasn't aware. I said, you know, we're 60 messages into Better Call Paul, another series. And he said he didn't know that. So shame on you, Tom. You're the oldest congregant. You should know better. I want to talk tonight about the gospel, an unconditional promise with a universal horizon. The gospel, an unconditional promise with a universal horizon. We've said many times or intimated in many ways that we can only appreciate the breadth or the horizon or the scope of salvation when we appreciate the depth of the cross. We only know the breadth of his salvation when we appreciate the depth of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The more we plumb that depth, the more we say with Paul, may it never come into being that I should ever glory in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom I have been crucified to this world and this world has been crucified to me. The cross then is the center and the depth of the cross is the central voice, the central message of the radical saving righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of that whole thing is the cry or the, or the spoken, quiet perhaps spoken word heard by John, the beloved disciple, to tell us thy finished mission accomplished. So I want to go back to Galatians 3.7 and I am going to reiterate some of last night's message because it's pivotal and really at the kind of the heart and center of my study in Better Call Paul and the question that we've asked, does Paul, do Paul's epistles in toto, and I'm speaking particularly here so far of the 10 that exclude the three pastoral epistles, which we'll get to in a, another segment. I'm not going to de- deny or negate or neglect them. But do Paul's epistles in toto present to the mind's eye a vision of an all-saving Savior 
And we could even add to that and say, and does that vision, is that vision that which the proverb writer was speaking of when he said, without it, the people are perishing. Without this vision, there's chaos, even among the believing part of humanity. But with this vision, there is coherence, there's clarity, there's cohesion, there's communion, there is fellowship, there is effective Christian living that goes way beyond human ethics and moral propriety and demonstrates the very life and living of Jesus Christ. Backing up then to Galatians 3.7, Paul's engaged in serious combat here against the incursion of certain teachers who have not only dismantled his gospel, but slandered his person. And he's saying to the Galatians, he appeals to them, he said, you know then that those who are, here's the word, ek pistios, this is a word you should be start to become familiar with, the Greek ek pistios. We know then that those who are from faithfulness, that is from the faithfulness as a source, these are the sons of Abraham. Now he's not going to stop there. He's aiming at something greater in 326. You are the sons of God. The teachers took him as far as being sons of Abraham if they were circumcised and they cheated and used Genesis 17:8, which is something that happened years after the promise was given to Abraham about circumcision, that they had to be circumcised to be the sons of Abraham. Paul takes them way past that, and by the time he gets to Galatians 3.26, he says, you are all the sons of God, and that's the very term used by Hosea in Hosea chapter 2 and verse 1 in the Septuagint translation. It's Hosea 2.1 in the Hebrew text. Unfortunately, it's Hosea 1.10 in a lot of English translations. But that's where God says, in the time, in that place, I will say to those who are not my people, you are the sons of the living God. The sons of God, therefore, is more than just a title. It is a title for the eschatological Israel, for the Israel of God, as we have discovered in previous studies of Galatians. So he says, you know that those who are from faithfulness, these are the sons of Abraham. We hear the saying ever since the 60s, you don't know where I'm coming from, or that's where I'm coming from. Well, this is saying those who are coming from the faithfulness, these are the true sons of Abraham. We'll find out what that faithfulness is. From faithfulness here, Ekpistios is the faithfulness, as we're going to see as Galatians 3 unfolds, especially in 3.23. The faithfulness or the faith that is being spoken of here is the faithfulness that came into the world concurrently with Christ. In other words, the coming of Christ or the day of Christ, the debut, I call it, the debut of Christ into this world by incarnation followed by his life in the flesh in which he made great cries and tears followed by passion followed by death, followed by burial, followed by resurrection, followed by elevation, followed by exaltation and enthronement. That's the Christ event. All of that is a saving event, not just his death, but all those things I mentioned are saving, part of a single saving event. You know what it is? It is the debut of faithfulness into this world. And the debut of faithfulness is the same It is identical with, not similar to, but identical to the debut of Christ, the coming of Christ. Now, there's a lot of ways to deal with this, but I'm going to try to stay, instead of scattergun, I'm going to try to use a rifle tonight and get to the heart of this. But from faithfulness describes the sons of Abraham. But the faithfulness 
as we're going to see, came into the world when Christ came. And so the faithfulness that we are from or that we find our source in is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We've seen this unfold a little bit in Romans 1.17. And we see in the following, we'll see the same thing over and over again. Now, if Paul intends, and much of Better Call Paul is a strenuous exercise because it forces the student, it forces the exegete, it has forced me into an intentionality analysis of Paul. What did you mean? What did you intend? What did Paul intend? And the only way to answer that is not to get in touch with Paul, of course, but to get in touch with the spirit of grace who inspired Paul and to do an intentionality analysis. I abbreviate that in my notes as lowercase i, period, lowercase a, period, intentionality analysis. So it might be, for note takers, it might be good to have that abbreviation because it'll come into play a lot. So in, if Paul intends that Abraham's faithfulness have an analogy to the Galatians' faith or faithfulness, it is still clear that he's not teaching that people are justified by their faith or that Abraham was justified by his faith. So it's not a matter of justification by faith versus justification by doing the works of the law, but that people, including Abraham and the Galatians, have the blessing of God through participation in Messiah's fidelity. In fact, we could almost say, and this will be a catchword for us, for a memory device, and I'm moving in some different realms of teaching this way, different methods of teaching. Salvation is participation. Salvation is participation. As Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life or the life of the coming age that they may know you, Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The knowledge there is not just a knowledge of an object outside of ourselves, but a knowledge that derives from participation with and in Christ and in the Father. For your life is hid with Christ in God. So, Notice this, and this, again, these are the points I want you to understand. Paul defines the gospel more clearly than anywhere else by relating it to a moment in time when Yahweh spoke, and Yahweh spoke to Abraham, and he gave him what Paul says is the gospel in advance. And this is what I want you to see, and I, I will not stop until I know that it's this ha- the, the hammer has driven the nail sufficiently into your consciousness. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. Now, the scripture, capitalize that because Paul is personifying scripture. There are many powers being represented here in Galatians and in Paul's epistles, which is another reason why it's called an apocalypse, because an apocalypse involves supranatural or suprahuman powers that were only vanquished by the divine power, and that power is the saving righteousness of God. It is a radical vision. So if you're going to stay outside the camp... You're going to have to go with a radical salvific vision, not just a halfway measure or a half measure. It's got to be radical. And that may reduce numbers, but that's all right. That doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. There is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if it's grace, it's no more works, no more works. And if it's works, it's no more grace. There's a mutual contradiction between those. So that's a Romans 11, six, five and six. Now the scripture here we have a power, a person. It's a personification of the scripture. And Paul does it here by calling it the scripture. The scripture does the same thing in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So here we could say the scripture 
is God. The scripture, foreseeing that God would liberate the Gentiles, that means rectify or justify the Gentiles, that means to set them right by delivering and liberating them. The scripture, foreseeing that God would, we'll use the word justify just for purposes of clarity here, would justify the Gentiles, that's the nations, by faithfulness. Here it is again, Greek buzzword, ek pistios, ek pistios. Paul uses it in Romans 1.17. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, and it from it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness. So here we have it again, ek pistios. Now the scripture, for seeing that God would rectify the Gentiles or justify the Gentiles by faithfulness, ek pistios, that means that of Christ as he unfolds it, preach the gospel in advance to Abraham. The scripture which is personified here, foreseeing the sweeping in of the Gentiles into the salvific plan of God, preached the gospel in advance to Abraham. Now, do you realize the power of that? He says the gospel was preached, and therefore what he quotes next is the gospel, saying, preach the gospel by saying this, quote, in you, All the nations will be blessed. In you, all the nations will be blessed. Now, Paul pulls some beautiful exegetical moves here that could only be by the Holy Spirit. Because as we've been seeing, it is not just to Abraham that these promises were made, but to his seed. And the seed is singular. And the verse to look to for that is mostly Genesis 22, 18. It is a promise made to Abraham, in you, Abraham, and your seed. That means even more importantly, in your seed. And the seed is Christ. And the promise is all the nations, not some of the nations, all the nations will be blessed. What is that? That's the gospel. Well, what kind of a statement is it? First, it's unconditional. It's an unconditional promise. He does not say, in you, and later on he explains in 3.16, and in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, or all the nations will be blessed if they believe. It says all the nations will be blessed, period. Close quote. Because what is in view here is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which is inevitable when that was proclaimed. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now the scripture, foreseeing that God would rectify the Gentiles, that means deliver and liberate them from the powers of sin and death and the law. That's what the negative side of salvation is, liberation. By faithfulness, that is Christ's faithfulness, preach the gospel in advance to Abraham, saying simply, in you, all the nations will be blessed. There's two things I notice about this gospel. One, it's unconditional. It's an un- the unconditionality of it. And the second thing I notice about it is its universal scope or universal horizon. What is not mentioned here is exactly how that would occur, but that he explains in verses 10 through 14, through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have the gospel, an unconditional promise with a universal horizon. I have no problem with the universal horizon. You know why? Because I know the depth of the cross. I know the depth of God's love, so I'm not shocked at the breadth of his love, the width of his love, the length of his love. 
the love of Christ that surpasses knowing. So he then piles it on again. Incidentally, in you all the nations will be blessed is found in various forms in Genesis 12.3 and Genesis 18.18. It's repeated, and that's why Paul sometimes calls it promises. Not because the gospel is many promises, but because the one promise was repeated several times. God repeats, so who am I not to repeat? So I'm repeating. And I have a mandate to repeat, so I'm just going to repeat and repeat. Because for you, it's safe, according to Philippians 3.1. So then, Paul repeats, those who are from faithfulness, ek pistios, for the third time. Those who are from faithfulness. We could say those who are the beneficiaries of faithfulness, and later on explains that's the faithfulness of Christ. So then, those who are from faithfulness, are blessed with faithful Abraham. Abraham, then, is a picture not of people being justified by faith, but of he is a picture before he became circumcised of the Gentiles that would also be benefited by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So here's some things to reiterate or to reestablish. They're either paragraphs or they're sentences, and I did this around 5 o'clock today, and so it was after a lot of thought, but... The first thing, these are either paragraphs or sentences. First, one, the gospel, which the scripture preached in advance to Abraham, was an unconditional promise that was universal in scope. Let's call that scope horizon. We're dealing with eight theological functional specialties now, only really with Better Call Paul, we began with the ninth. The ninth theological functional specialty identified by Robert M. Duran is horizons. And I'll explain that as we go in our future studies. So the gospel with the, which the scripture preached and advanced to Abraham was an unconditional promise. This is interesting because this is the scripture before the scripture was written. So think about that. The gospel which the scripture preached and advanced to Abraham was an unconditional promise that was universal in its horizon. The promise was spoken unconditionally to Abraham's seed who is Christ. The promise is that all the nations will be blessed, and I'm going to explain what that blessing is as we unfold these seven or eight points. The promise is that all the nations will be blessed in Abraham's seed. That is Christ. We will find that all nations includes Israel. There are times when Israel is looked upon as distinct from the nations, but there are other times when Israel is looked upon as being among the nations. When it comes to the salvific righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Christ, Israel is among all the nations and included in all the nations. And if you don't believe that, you have to read Romans eleven twenty six again, that all Israel will be saved. When all the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, all the other Gentile nations come in. So the promise is that all the nations will be blessed in Abraham's seed. All nations includes Israel. For as we know, all Israel will be saved. Second point, which may be a paragraph or it may be a sentence. I don't know yet. The singular seed. Tony, you forecasted this message in your prophetic message in my absence. The singular seed in whom all the nations will be blessed is the same Christ who is also called the second man in 1 Corinthians 15. 45 to 49. He's called the second man or the last Adam. He's called the second man because there are 
only two men in all of human history who bore the destiny of humankind in its totality. Adam was a bearer of the destiny of mankind. So when Adam sinned, all sinned. When Adam died, all died. And Adam, all died. That was the bearing of the destiny. But there's a second man. Thank God. The Lord from heaven, a life-giving spirit, who was the bearer of the destiny of all humankind. So in Christ, all will be made alive. And that's all has to be the same conglomerate of humanity who in Adam die, which means all humanity. So what I'm trying to say is the same singular seed, Christ, is the same as the second man, Christ, in whom all will be made alive. The one called the seed in whom all the nations will be blessed is the same Christ in whom all will be made alive. So we're going to start to see that the blessing has something to do with being made alive, but not just made alive, but made alive together with Christ and made alive together with Christ means participation in the divine nature. It means participation or a shared existence with Jesus Christ. Imagine if the gospel is actually announcing that all humanity and Paul fans out later to include all creation is going to share the same living in life as Jesus Christ. That would be a gospel. And judgment would fit into it because judgment is resurrection. Resurrection is judgment. Resurrection sets right the evildoer, transforms the evildoer. If there was a system that mankind could promote, and they try it, but it it fails. If there was a system where the worst evildoers could be genuinely rehabilitated, then it would be a shame to punish evildoers, but rather to rehabilitate them. But there really is no program that can rehabilitate the Adamic nature. And so there is a system of imprisonment and sometimes even capital punishment. Some people recoil at that, but this is, we're talking about a life, this side of eternal life, we're talking about the protection of society. But in any case, God has a system by which the most malevolent malefactors can be not only rehabilitated, but transformed. The judgment of evildoers in the resurrection. They will be raised to judgment, but their judgment will be a transformation by the grace of God into a person who could never repeat evil, into a person who could never oppress again. But that's a judgment. The resurrection will be unto their judgment. That's I'm getting off track, but something to think about anyway. Worst can happen to you is you got something else to think about in the word. That, that's something I'll, every time I do that, I see, I see the whole, I hear the Holy Spirit say, now, you know, Rick, you're going to have to develop this. And I say, yes, sir. I love being under the authority of God because he's a gracious master. I bucket being under the authority of anybody else in the Adamic nature, although it's good to be under constituted authorities, represented authorities, delegated authorities. So my point in the second point is this, and this is an appeal, an appeal. I've had friends that have been attacked by friends of the camps I've been in before because those, and I'm not going to grind any axes, but I will say that some of my friends are stuck in a moment and they're holding on to a level of development of insight where they stop dead 
And sometimes when their mentor dies, they stop dead right there with the mentors, as far as the mentor took them. And they have attacked other friends of mine. I mean viciously, at dinners, over the phone, because they adhere to the doctrine that I'm teaching. But, thankfully, those who are adhering to this doctrine showed themselves to be gracious, showed themselves to be kind, and did not give evil for evil. And that, that really impresses me. So I'm appealing to those who recoil at the idea of a radical salvific righteousness. However one interprets these verses, Galatians 3, 8, 9, 16, and etc., 1 Corinthians 15, 22, and 22 to 28, and if you want to throw the ball as far as it goes in the scripture, to God becoming all in all. However you interpret those verses, it's impossible to miss the word all in both cases. So I don't challenge you to accept any doctrine I'm teaching. I challenge you to go deeper in your profound respect for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I promise the result of that will be a horizon, a position of you, positioning of you, ironically, not in a higher place, but in a lower place in humility to see the horizon of universal impact of the cross of Christ. It doesn't come from being placed up higher. It comes from going down lower in humility. It is a horizon seen, not from the standpoint of a peak of a mountain, but from the standpoint of the depth of the dying and the death of our Messiah. That's when I have no problem seeing a universal horizon. Third point, because A, the promise was made to Abraham and to his seed. And B, because the seed is Christ, then the gospel is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Fourth point, because A, those who are of the faithfulness, ekpistios, those who are of faithfulness are blessed. Those who are of faithfulness are blessed with faithful Abraham. But let's just say this, because those who are of the faithfulness are blessed, and because B, all the nations are blessed in Christ, then it's not unreasonable to at least consider that all humanity will be the eventual beneficiaries of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Again, two classes of people are blessed. Those who are of faithfulness, if this is Christ's faithfulness, it's a slam dunk. Those who are of faithfulness are blessed. But there's another class. All the nations will be blessed in him. So they are also identical. Those who are of the faithfulness are identical or are the same crowd as those who are all of the nations because they both are blessed. Food for thought. The impact of eating food comes later when the energy comes and the illumination comes. So don't, don't worry if you're not getting it quite yet. Fifth point. In fact, Christ's coming and the coming of faith are the same event. That's something that will become more clear as we go advancing into Galatians. The coming of Christ and the coming of faithfulness is the same event in history. When Christ came, 
There came the fullness of grace and truth. There came the expression and manifestation of the covenant fidelity that God required of Israel, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So the promise is unconditional because any condition that could ever be fulfilled was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. So in fact, Christ's coming and the coming of faithfulness are the same event. So to say that we are beneficiaries of the faithfulness is simply to say that we are the beneficiaries of the Christ. From his fullness, we have all received, said John in 116. That's when the incipient seeds of this gospel started, right here at the Alamo. Right here at the Alamo when we got into John's gospel, the fourth G. Six point, or six sentence, or paragraph, whatever it comes out to be. Promises, plural, in Galatians 3.16. Now remember, promises sometimes, three times. There's about nine times where it's just the promise. Three times the promises. Don't be confused. It's promises, plural, because God simply repeated the promise. And it's, so it's one promise, but it can also be spoken of as the promises. This is, again, this is my theory or hypothesis, but I'm trying to use Sundays and other messages to pan it out. Promises in Galatians 3.16 correlates with promises in 2 Peter 1.4. By certain exceeding great and precious promises, we are partakers, there it is, participants of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the cosmos through lust or the impulsive desire of the flesh another abbreviation for you idf it's a supernatural power from which we could not control we can't control it we can't be stoics and hold down this thing called the flesh because it's more powerful than all of humanity but there's only one power more powerful than this flesh and it is the holy spirit and the flesh wars against the spirit that's the apocalyptic eschatological war You may want to fantasize about that happening in some distant future, but it's on right now. And those who like to fantasize about it being in the future are using the excuse of the futurity of it from present engagement in it. AWOL, deserters, defectors, idolaters, really. Sixth. Then promises in Galatians 3.16 correlates elegantly with promises in 2 Peter 1.4. And 2 Peter is an attempt, as is First and Second Timothy and Titus, to round up Paul's message as a single radical apocalypse of God's saving righteousness. What I'm doing now is sort of announcing a curriculum of subjects. And you're saying, what do those subjects mean? And that's what our curriculum will be all about. Promises in Galatians 3.16 correlates with the promises of 2 Peter 1.4, which should read this way. By God's fulfillment in Christ of the promises, and that means the promise made and repeated to Abraham and to his seed, we become partakers of the divine nature. Salvation is participation in Christ. So we are all sharers in Jesus Christ's existence, and we're partakers in Trinitarian fellowship. 1 John 1, 3, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The seventh point, and then we'll move on to the middle section and the end section, which is kind of a repetition of last night. The promises, or promise, you say promise with parentheses, S, close parentheses, can be promise or promises. The promise correlates elegantly with the mystery of God's intent, which Pastor Brown has done magnificent work with and prophetic work. 
The promises correlate elegantly with the mystery of God's intent, which is found in Ephesians 1, 9 through 11, and with his unstoppable determination. I don't know if anybody of us really appreciates Isaiah 46, 10, when he says, I will do all my will. He's talking about an unstoppable determination. Nothing can stop it. That's why neither height nor depth nor things present nor things to come or things beneath or things above or any other created thing shall ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In fact, Paul said all things are yours, whether present or past or things above or things below or death or life itself. We are yours. Paul, Peter, Cephas, Apollos, we're yours. All things are yours. The world is yours. That's the kind of things you hear at uh, commencement speeches the world is yours but doesn't mean anything because and it's not true but paul says the world is yours because the world the cosmos was given to jesus christ in his resurrection and you are in christ and therefore the world belongs to you so and death is yours when it comes to your death own it death doesn't own you you own death paul says first corinthians three twenty one to 23 don't overrate a defeated enemy. And I'm not by that belittling death or the grief that people experience when they lose the loved one. Contrary to that, that's of course a grief. Of course, if you're human and of course, if you're spiritual, you have that grief. But when it comes to your own death, you be thinking in your mind, I own death. It belongs to me. I don't belong to death because Jesus Christ holds the keys of death and of Hades. So fear not. I hate to admit that I'm actually looking forward to that moment. But God's made me sure that he's not going to hurry it for some reason. The promises, and it's not because of anything to do with me. It's something to do with, you got a lot of work to do yet, boy. Okay. The promises correlate elegantly with a mystery. What is the mystery of God's intent? To bring all things into their totality in Christ. All things universally. Ephesians 1, 9 to 11. And with his intent to reconcile all things in the heaven and on earth via the peace that we, he made by the blood of Christ's cross. Colossians 1, 20. So the promise correlates with the intention of God, which also is a determination that's unstoppable. The promise is unconditional because the determination is inevitable and unstoppable. All of this makes me think of Romelli's book in the eventual apocatastasis. Because in order to see all people in Christ and all creation in Christ, we have to throw the ball as far out as the scripture can throw it. And when you hit those places, when you hit those places that are as far out as the scripture throws the ball for us to see, that's when you get to terms like God will be all in all. Christ must reign until all his enemies are under his feet, the last enemy being death. And when death is under his feet, then he commits the kingdom that he rules over to the Father so that God can be all in all. That's as far as you can throw, it's as far as the scripture throws the ball for us to see. And so there's a lot of things that intervene in between them. There's a lot of suffering that human beings go through. There's a lot of things we could even constitute as historical judgments on nations that people go through. But the ultimate eventuality is the radical realization of the saving righteousness of God in Jesus Christ for all and for all creation. So the blessing that comes to all the nations in Abraham's seed is participation in the divine nature. 
You tell me a greater blessing that could exist than the blessing of participation in the divine nature. In other words, participation in Christ's own existence, who became like us so that we could become like him. He became like us except for sin. We'll become like him except for divinity itself. But we'll become as he is. And when we see him, and that's assured, we'll be like him. And so in that sense, salvation is participation with Christ. So, so far, I agree with Douglas A. Campbell. Salvation is participation. I also read several articles on the apocalyptic view of Paul. And I'll be honest with you, I still got a little bit of prejudice about reading women writers. Because it's an old thing that's got to get out of me. But the best articles I read recently were by ladies. One was an priest. She was a priest of the Anglican Church. Another was a scholar from Duke University. And one of them I read, and I didn't even, I said, man, he's good. And then I read where he came from, and it's a she. But the best articles I read, I'll give you, especially I'll give you ladies a chance to read those exact articles. I think you'll appreciate them. Not that there's any male or female in Christ, but you know what I mean. So in Christ, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that blessing is a shared participation with his life. The gospel promises an unconditional promise that all the nations will have the blessing of a participation in the life of the seed, Christ. The only way that can happen is through the gift of the Spirit. In fact, the promise is also the same as the Spirit. He's called the Spirit of Promise. We were sealed with that Spirit of Promise. We were sealed with the promised Spirit. Jesus said to his disciples, wait in Jerusalem. Be patient and wait there for a while until the promise from my Father comes to you from on high. The promise from my Father is the Spirit. It's the Spirit by which we know we participate in Christ's living. In 1 John 3.24, it's the Spirit which wages war against the flesh, which would have us otherwise. And so, the seed to whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed, including Israel, is the man Christ Jesus, in whom all who were once in Adam will be made alive in Christ. So there is a stunning universality. And the enemies of this earth, the people that have set themselves against this gospel, the only way they're going to be convinced is God stunning them. It's not going to be because one of us has such a logic of rhetoric that we can convince somebody is dead set against it, whose primary Christian tenet is the existence of an eternal hell. So if you cross that, you have crossed their God, their idol, their supreme concern, which is not to please God, but to escape hell. But the only way they can get away from that whole notion, and no Old Testament saint believed in an eternal hell. There's nothing in the Old Testament that tells of an eternal hell. The, the, there was the pagans believe in an eternal hell as a myth that Jesus poked fun at, basically, in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. But Christians today hold on to it as the central tenet of the Christian faith. They can't fellowship with you if you don't believe that God hurls hundreds of millions of people into a furnace of fire and affliction from which they will never recover, and there's no relief ever, ever again. And if you don't believe that, you don't believe in my God. You can have him. That reminds me of little Sela, the Fergusons from Mississippi, who will be joining us fairly soon in the summer. She came downstairs once and she heard me hollering on a tape. 
And she went up to her parents. I think she was about four years old at the time. She's not, she's older now. She said to her parents, because I was yelling. I mean, I was hollering. She says, I can't like your God. Not I don't. I can't. I can't like your God. She's changed since then. The problem with, she thought I was God, see. And I was yelling, see. She thought I was God. I can't like your God. Well, it's okay if you don't like me. But if your God is one who hurls people into hell, I can't like your God. That's all I'm saying. So, in Christ, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is by a shared participation with his life by the Spirit. Do you see what I'm saying? The promises of blessing in Galatians 3 are the promises of participation in the divine nature in 2 Peter 1.4. So the unconditional promise is that all the nations will participate in the shared existence with the seed, Messiah, or have the life of Christ, be alive with the living of Christ. And that's not only true for humanity, but for all of creation who groans, which groans in anticipation of its liberation from corruption. And that liberation from corruption is when God will bring to its totality the whole of creation, bring to its totality an eschatological new creation. So unlike the former that the former cannot be recalled to remembrance. remembrance. So unlike it that the former cannot be recalled to remembrance, nor can the traumas or the oppression or the violence done to you in the last be remembered again. That's how far God's redemption is. And so, Galatians 3.17. I'll read it. That's as far as we'll go. This is what I'm saying, Paul says. The law. Complete Jewish Bible rightly says, I think at least partly rightly says, the legal part of Torah. Or the legal or forensic voice of the law, we could say. This is what I'm saying. The law, Torah, which came 430 years later. And that's interesting because then it was written. The scripture before it was written promised with an unconditional promise. When the scripture was written, it contained a legal forensic voice called the law. But Paul says that law, which came 430 years later, later than what? Later than God, the scripture preaching the gospel to Abraham. Later than gospel being proclaimed as an unconditional promise with a universal horizon came the law. It does not nullify a covenant. The unconditional covenant of promise is what he's referring to, so as to cancel the promise. The law that comes 430 years later can't stand up to the promise and say, you can't come to the Gentiles unless the Gentiles fulfill circumcision. That's what the Jewish teachers were saying to them. The promise will come to you if you're circumcised and if you fulfill the law. But Paul's saying here, the law that came 430 years after the promise, which promised the unconditional life of blessing to the Gentiles, the law coming 430 years later doesn't do anything to nullify that, cancel it, amend it, or change it in any way. That's like saying you can turn back the unstoppable determination of the divine intention. Verse 18, for if the inheritance, now he uses the word inheritance, he means the inheritance of the blessing which includes the inheritance of the cosmos, the whole world, the universe, in Romans 4.13, or in Romans 8.32, of all things, the inheritance of all things. See this new heavens and new earth? It's yours. You. It's yours.
So when Abraham was told to look east, west, south, and north, his eyes would only take him to a certain horizon. But God meant you can have everything east, south, north, and west as far as east, south, north, and west go. So Romans 4.13 says that was the whole cosmos, the universe. And Romans 8.32 says God didn't spare his son as he spared Isaac when Abraham offered him. God did not spare his only son when he offered him. And now, having not spared him, will he not freely give us tapanta, everything, as our inheritance? Because he gave it to Jesus Christ in John 3.35. He's given everything into his hand. He's given all flesh into his authority. He's given the whole universe to him. God loved the world so much that he gave it his son. God loved his son so much that he gave him the world. God loves you so much in his son that he gives you the world with him. That's your inheritance. So if, if the inheritance, he says, is from the law, ek namu, not ek pistios, the faithfulness of Christ, but ek namu, from your adherence to the law or from the law, it's no longer from the promise. What's being juxtaposed in opposition here is not justification by the works of the law versus justification by faith. What's being juxtaposed here is the blessing coming by the promise, which is unconditional and universal, or the blessing coming by the law, which is conditional and anything but universal. It's entirely individualistic. But Paul, I like what Paul makes it clear. Now, he doesn't leave that up in the air. That's why I have to close right here instead of earlier. But God freely, this is what I hit this last night. Please, you may, I think safely, and I say this in fear and trembling, but I think we can safely translate freely as unconditionally. If I'm going to give my child or my grandchild a gift, I'm not going to say, here's a gift conditioned upon your obedience for the next 35 years to every whim and every command I give to you. That's like God saying, here, Israel, males of Israel, I will give you this unconditional gift if you go cut your penis. I did that on purpose, too. Think about it, though. It's, that's circumcision. Never mind. That's circum- if you circumcise, get it? Then that's not, that's not a gift. So, but God freely granted it. Kekaristai the perfect middle indicative of the verb my he freely granted it to Abraham by a promise. He freely, unconditionally granted the blessing to Abraham, which was a blessing to all the nations in his seed, granted it unconditionally and freely. So some conditional contract that comes in later, 430 years later, cannot disannul or stand up as a blockade against that promise any more than someone inventing a codicil to some man's last will and testament can end that man's intention before he died. So then why the law? This is where we're going. I told you I'd point in the direction of where we're going. So then why the law? It was a temporary prosthetic or prosthesis. Temporary prosthesis. A temporary addition to add to because of the transgressions until the coming of the seed to whom the promise was made. It, the law, was ordered through angels by the hand of a mediator. Two things about the law already inferior. God gave the promise directly to Abraham. The law was given through angels, which may have very well been the Elohim that God discredited 
the angels. And it was done through a mediator. The mediator wasn't the angels. The mediator was Moses. The, the law was given, ordained, and commanded by angels through a mediator, Moses. And so the inferiority of the law, when it's matched up against the promise, is that God made the promise directly and unconditionally to Abraham without condition. And that cannot be blockaded by any subsequent law. So a mediator is not a mediator of one. I don't say to my son, I'm going to give you a gift, but first I have to mediate through myself. Because I don't really, I don't think I have a multiple personality disorder. I might. Oh, I haven't been diagnosed with it. I could be, I could be suffering from many forms of psychosis. But Paul said, bear with, bear with me in my madness. The most sane people that have ever lived in history were usually called crazy, including Paul. Is that right, Paul? Yes, it is. Is that right, Paul? Yes, it is. 2 Corinthians 5, 11, 12, and 13. So, is the law, with its forensic, legal, booming, thundering voice, against the promise of God? That is, the sense here is, can the law successfully blockade the promise? Of course not. Meganoito. For if a law had been given that had the power to give life, then righteousness, or we could say salvation, would be by the law. If there was a law that you could fulfill and do it and would create life, then God would have given a law. But he, there is no law that can give life. But the promise gives life because my words are spirit and they are life. The gospel has the power to impart that life the moment someone is in the hearing of it. And the power ignites your personal faith. We believe, but we're not justified by our faith. We are delivered and liberated by the faithfulness. I am ek pistios. I am from the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. I'm proud of it. That means I glory in that. I glory in the cross. That's, a, that's enough for tonight. We'll take this on Sunday. Oh, Sunday. Oh, boy. I don't say that about Sunday is not an inferior crowd. Sunday is usually a bigger crowd, but Sunday involves a segment that doesn't really want to be here. Not Thursdays. You got to be here. You're here because you wanted to be. You may never come back again, but you were here. All right. Let's father. We thank you for this opportunity and we pray beyond the struggling and the strenuous study that a pastor does. We know that that's absolutely striving in vain. Sowing to the wind, it's nothing unless the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of grace, illuminates the hearers with this idea of a radical saving righteousness of God in Jesus Christ.